0: I'm Tom McKinnon.
1: And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 10th, 2012.
0: Coming up, we talk to scientists about ways of transforming arid lands. The microorganisms found in biological soil crust can mitigate
2: climate change and assist agriculture.
1: And we'll hear from scientists who warn that nicotine patches might make it harder to quit. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: One of the outcomes of global warming could be less hail on the Colorado Front Range, according to Boulder-based scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. While less hail may be good news for farmers and insurance companies, it could spell more runoff and more flash flooding, according to Kelly Mahoney, the lead author of the study. Mahoney and her co-authors conducted a so-called downscaling computer model in order to predict what might happen to the climate on a local level. One of the inputs to the model was the assumption that greenhouse gases will rise 60% above today's level in the next 60 years. The result, uh, and the result was that the simulation predicted that hail will totally disappear at the surface. Because slow melting hail moderates the inrush into streams, removing hail from the system could lead to rapid flooding. In addition, the model predicts that extreme precipitation events all across Colorado will become even more extreme. The work was published this week in the journal Nature Climate Change.
1: In the Galapagos Islands, one living turtle is a famous symbol of extinction. He's Lonesome George, a giant Galapagos turtle weighing around 800 pounds and around 100 years old. Sadly, there is no Lady George. Lonesome is the last known member of his species, so when Lonesome George dies, his clan will join several other Galapagos turtle species that are all known to be extinct. Or are they? Researchers now have evidence that a different Galapagos turtle species, thought to be extinct for 150 years, is probably alive. The most likely no longer extinct giant turtle is Chelenoidus elephantopus. A Yale research team reached these conclusions by analyzing DNA from the blood of over 1,600 wild turtles who live on Isabella Island, which is the biggest, wildest island in the Galapagos. Yale biologist Ryan Garrick says they compared those living samples to dead turtles preserved in museums. And we were able to get DNA out of bone samples and dried skin. Comparing the living DNA to that of the museum samples indicates 84 of the living turtles sampled so far are hybrids where one parent is a full-blooded sea elephantopus. And since some of these hybrids are less than 20 years old and Galapagos turtles can live over 100 years, the odds are good that some of their purebred parents are still alive. This may be the first time that the existence of a purebred species has been proven through the DNA of hybrid offspring. By the way, Isabella Island is not the island where sea elephant is first evolved in the Galapagos. Scientists suspect that the big turtles got a ride to Isabella thanks to whalers and pirates who captured living turtles for food and then lost some of them overboard. These giant turtles are land turtles. They cannot swim but Garrick says they do bob like a cork.
2: They do. They, they aren't active swimmers, but they certainly won't drown, so they, they float quite
3: well.
1: Garrick suspects a few of the castaways probably drifted onto Isabella, where the descendants apparently still survive.
2: Uh, <laughs> um, it, would, it would be fantastic if, if, we are, if we could find that, and we're at the moment working using the same sorts of techniques
1: that's Garrick talking about the likelihood that they want to discover a purebred Georgette. He adds that researchers do have DNA evidence for a few hybrid relatives of George. They plan to share new information about them, and lonesome George, in the coming months.
0: And from the history vaults, 50 years ago today, NASA announced plans to build the Saturn V rocket that lifted every lunar mission. The first rocket was launched five years later in 1967. No other rocket since then has surpassed the Saturn V in heavy lift capability.
1: There's a little cigarette-smoking music for you. If you want to stop smoking, don't count on nicotine patches or nicotine gum to help you do it. That's the conclusion to a multi-year study of 800 smokers out in the real world that was published yesterday in the journal Tobacco Control. And this study might lead to a major shift in national policy. For years, the federal government and insurance companies have encouraged people to use nicotine replacement therapies. We've used plenty of public dollars to provide nicotine patches and nicotine gum at reduced cost and sometimes for free. That's all because double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials, often conducted by drug companies, indicated that these therapies help people stop smoking. The new study from researchers at Harvard and the University of Massachusetts indicates that out there in the real world, people who use nicotine replacement therapy in the hopes of an easier quit don't fare any better than people who use willpower and more community support. Some people who use nicotine replacements are actually more likely to relapse. To find out more, we spoke with one of the lead researchers on this study, Lois Beener. Among those who were the heaviest smokers, those who used nicotine for any period of time were three times more likely to relapse than the people who didn't use it at all. Isn't this wild that the -the out-in-the-world, on-the-ground evidence is contradicting all of these very rigorous scientific studies that said that nicotine patches and nicotine gum would help people stop smoking? Well, yes. It's a problem that we have looking at drug effectiveness in general. You used random digit-dial surveys to find out how is the nicotine patch working? and You found out it wasn't working all that well. Correct. Right now there is a huge amount of public dollars that is going into supporting the use of nicotine patches to help people quit smoking. Should we change that? Well, wide reach interventions such as mass media campaigns, clean indoor air policy, and trying to make more of our public spaces smoke free. The funding of those efforts is being reduced and focused more on treating individuals with individual medication. Our feeling is that this is really a very questionable use of public funds. And so you would rather have policymakers cut back on providing nicotine patches and nicotine gum for free. Are you getting much backlash from your report? I think we can expect that. Drug companies are putting a lot of their uh, marketing efforts into promoting these drugs. Have you ever been a smoker? I have. How did you quit? I stopped. (laughs) Well, I think it will be interesting to watch their reactions to your study. It will be. Lois Beener is a senior research fellow at the Center for Survey Research at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Her research was published yesterday in the journal Tobacco Control. It indicates that nicotine patches and nicotine gum don't really help smokers quit. Sometimes they make it harder to quit. If you'd like an extended version of this interview, check it out on our online website, howonearthradio.org.
0: listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. Great plumes of dust rising from the desert form an iconic image of the West, but much of that dust is a result of humans altering the desert soil structure. Several Boulder scientists are investigating a new technology that may allow us to restore the desert and sequester large amounts of carbon at the same time. We have with us in the studio Jim Jim Sears, president of A2BE Carbon Capture, right here in Boulder. Jim, welcome back to How on Earth. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And with Jim is uh, Bharat Prithviraj, a postdoctoral research associate in chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Colorado. Bharat, welcome you, to Tom. How on Earth.
3: Yeah, it's a pleasure being here.
0: Well, Jim and Baratta, uh, the goal of your work, or at least one of them, uh, is to restore arid regions uh, to their state before human activity, like grazing and agriculture, uh, the so- damage the soil structure. Uh, before we describe about your, your fix, uh, uh, tell us what uh, uh, pristine desert soil or arid region soil looks like on a microscopic scale. Well, in many places in the, in the desert, there's a, a saying, don't bust the crust,
2: which really uh, is talking about the living aspect of soil that many people don't see. It's called cryptobiotic. It's, it's a hidden biology of the soil. And the actual surface of the soil is, is photosynthetic. Uh, it contains many different organisms operating in concert with each other in, in symbiosis.
3: It's another interesting fact that the one millimeter to four millimeter layer just above the soil is all living forms, and these living forms constitute the soil crust, and it includes a consortia of communities that include bacteria, algae, fungi, and other microscopic eukaryotes that live with them.
0: And you describe it as a crust. It's not that we think of uh, shifting sands in the desert, but it's not really that way, huh? No, it's actually
2: these microorganisms, they they glue the soil grains together, and that's extremely beneficial because as the crust actually is glued together, it prevents it from blowing away in the wind, the top layers that have the organic material, and it keeps them from from splattering
0: away and eroding away with uh, precipitation. Okay, so uh, is there a record of an increase in dust activity uh, when humans began uh, running sheep and cattle on, on these arid regions? Absolutely. Uh, some researchers have looked, for example, at the increase in
2: sheep uh, in the 1850s. and this created huge amounts of dust and, and actually the deserts have healed the Colorado Plateau areas somewhat healed since the 1850s, but not completely. It takes hundreds of years in some cases. Okay, so
0: it's a very slow uh, process. So, so now let's get, get back to your or get to your technology. Um, how can we do it? How can we help uh, uh, restore the desert uh, to what it once was?
2: Well, again, it's, what we're trying to do is to accelerate its restoration. If it, anywhere on, on, the, on the planet where these crusts are, are turned under the soil, whether it's by the hooves of animals or the wheels of vehicles or the, the feet of people are just sh- shifting uh, things due to the weather, it, they get out of the light and they, they die and they decay. So how can we take these areas that have been actually destroyed by, by man over time and accelerate their recovery? Because given a, a, a number of decades or a few hundred years, it will naturally occur. But how can we move it faster? Because they're really important in, in climate change and other aspects such as reducing dust. So one of the methods that we're looking at is re-inoculating these soils, re-inoculating the surface. and. Researchers have been looking at this for many years, particularly putting uh, liquid media on the, the soil that contains inoculations of the natural uh, ambient soil crust and spraying this on uh, to areas that it doesn't have however that is only a small scale solution and the problem is really a huge scale problem and so what we're looking at in this in this study in this initiative is how can we do that from aircraft how can we make a dry dispersant that can be dropped out of aircraft over huge landscape
0: areas and start to recover this soil crust. Okay, and in your paper you describe uh, quite a cocktail of things in it's in this inoculant. Uh, to tell us what what is it you're spreading on the soil.
2: Well, fundamentally, we're, we're spreading some of the, the main uh, organisms, which the number one is cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria is actually the, the power organism that, uh, for, for the soil crust. It takes, using photosynthesis, it actually turns atmospheric nitrogen and carbon dioxide into sugars uh, and fixed nitrogen that help mother, other microbes in the soil live, and it actually percolates down into the soil and over time, can still can help grasses and, and shrubs to both establish and, and grow. So it's it's kind of a, a genesis microorganism for bare soil.
3: It's interesting to call the cyanobacteria as ecosystem engineers, essentially because they are pioneer organisms that drive the photosynthetic machinery for these consortia of soil crust organisms. Essentially, you want. A pioneer organism that drives how these organisms interact with each other and hold together the mesh that covers the soil layer and also enables ecosystem functioning over time. So, how long would it take
0: after you fly over your aircraft, your crop duster, and you spread this on the desert until it establishes hold and makes a new crust? well largely it, it depends
2: on how much water is uh, available the the more water the faster it will happen but the, these uh crust exist on the driest most you know arid parts of the of the planet so even uh, a, a handful of days of, uh, of dew or, or rain a year is enough to make some of them grow but as the amount of water increases the acceleration of, of its growth is uh, increased what we're talking about is taking uh, levels of crust restoration that may take, you know, 10 years or 40 years or 100 years, and reducing that down to a handful of years or less less than 10 in most cases.
0: Okay. Now, you you talk in your paper about a uh, carbon capture aspect of this as well. Um, uh, can you elaborate on that? You bet. <laughs> a,
2: a lot of folks don't realize that the uh, the soil is alive, and and in fact. When you go out into the desert, it's 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 just soil. It's, it's brown sand. But when water hits it, it actually turns green. It gets a green tinge, and that's because the photosynthetic aspects of the soil crust uh, move out. The chlorophyll is seen. This chlorophyll, like regular plants, sequesters carbon dioxide. It, it takes uh, the, the CO2 and through photosynthesis turns it into sugars. The amount of bare soil there is on the planet make it a you know significant drawn down mechanism for atmospheric co2 more than than folks have, have realized
0: yeah in fact you describe uh, sort of tens of grams per square meter which doesn't sound like much and then and then later in the paper you expand on that bra uh, uh, how much can we uh, sequester here in total
3: uh, the sequestering is a little more elaborate because there are mechanisms behind the scenes where you have these microbes that form part of soil crust that produce these compounds to screen out the ultraviolet rays that are incident on their surfaces. So the carbon dioxide is indirectly sequestered and uh, produced as secondary compounds that filter out these ultraviolet rays. And many of these fungi that associate themselves, in this case with the algae, as a symbiosis or a dual organism association, enable this process. And it's interesting, and this needs to be looked at in detail, especially at the scientific level.
2: You know, on a a level of of per square meter, we talk about the the grams of carbon per year that, that are pulled out of the atmosphere and put into the soil. For a soil crust, it's somewhat typical for 10 to 25 grams per year per square meter to be put into the soil, when we look into not just the, the amount of, of carbon that the soil uptakes, but look at the carbon that the, the soil crust helps the plants around it, the grasses uptake, we may be looking at 100 grams of carbon per square meter. The way the conversion works is that's actually almost three four times the amount of CO2, so maybe as much as 350 or 400 grams of CO2 per square meter per year can come out of the air.
0: And, and you've identified, uh, as I recall, billions of acres that this could be used on. So all told, that could uh, could be quite a significant amount of our, our greenhouse gas built up.
2: It really is. The The Earth's land surface is about 13 billion hectares, and, and much of that is arid. Much of that really has been uh, damaged by man. Uh, and when we look at the amounts of uh damaged uh, arid lands uh, agricultural applications of this the places where the soil crust cannot just be repaired but perhaps put in for the first time one could add up as as many as as a billion of of those hectares uh it's an area of study that's really important how big is this uh, is this solution but potentially extremely big
0: okay and for our listeners that uh, don't speak metric a hectare is <laughs> a uh, uh, hectare is <laughs> 2.2 uh, acres. acres all right um, now it, and dust control has some other secondary impacts on uh, on climate change uh, can you elaborate on that dust
2: control is is a big part of this because what the soil crust does is it not only pulls on carbon but it glues it, uh, together the grains and over large areas where the the dust is is released the, and the winds come along and deposited on glaciers and snowpack this is a, a surprisingly impactful result because it shortens the amount of time that the snow is, is frozen and it by sometimes 30 or more days per year. And when the snows melt earlier in the season, then this water comes down, causes germination to happen uh, earlier, so plants started to transpire and use the water earlier. And the end result is less ends up in our rivers and less for irrigation, less for California here from Colorado. Okay, and can you tell us the uh, current status of the research here? Has it been tested in the field yet? this research is, has been tested over uh, a number of years on on small scales as i would say using liquid wood media we're looking now you know there's increasing interest particularly from the military in stabilizing uh, soils from contaminants and in another in a number of areas from reclaiming uh, lands and looking at carbon capture so yeah research is is increasing but for too long this has been an overlooked uh, body of science mostly because people could not imagine that you could do it over a large area. When we're looking at using aircraft to, to do this, it changes everything. It
3: changes the possibility. There has been wide interest in uh, certain select species of algae, uh, especially documented by the USGS, and researchers in the Great Basin area on uh, looking at microcolia species, which is a specialized cyanobacteria that is predominant in, in desert crusts. But interestingly, you have another set of species that also can be looked at with its pivotal role to form this association. And we also are motivated to look at these other algae that could work or could uh, associate with a cyanobacteria and also drive the whole consortium. That could include other documented desert algae like chlorophytes and other green algae that associate themselves with fungi and form lichenized associations.
0: Okay. Have, do you have any estimates on, on what this would uh, cost if it was uh, deployed on a on a, a, a planetary scale?
2: Well, when we l- look at the the cost of what the inoculant might be, and we're we're talking about making a. a, a Dry aggregate where the small pieces would be constructed about the size of periods, and you 'd be able to put say a hundred million of them on a on a hectare from an aircraft, but this is actually amazingly practical it 's about twenty pounds per acre, and this could cost just on you know on the order of ten dollars per acre to actually manifest and put this out and and over a planetary scale, compared to how much carbon it draws down and how much it would cost, the, the price of drawing down that carbon might be as little as a dollar per ton. Hmm. And possibly could get a, a carbon credit uh, for capturing that as well? You know, there's intriguing possibilities for some of the third world company countries where their, their soils are, uh, where they have a lot of opportunity to gain carbon credits by restoring their soils.
0: Okay, we have about uh, 30 seconds left. Uh, can you uh, point our listeners to uh, any websites? And perhaps uh, did we leave anything out?
2: You bet. We've, we've uh, been looking at this from a platform of uh, my company, Algae at Work, and the, the website is simply spelling algae, A-T-Work, algaeatwork.com. Uh, there's also uh, information available by simply writing uh, Barath or myself, and we'll send you a, a white paper that talks more about this uh, opportunity. Uh, we'll also include on the website a number of very interesting uh, sites where people can learn about soil crust because it's really crypto. It's really a hidden uh, biology
0: out there in the world. Okay, that was Jim Sears and Barat Fivaraj. Uh We will put those links uh, on uh, howonearthradio.org as well. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tom.
3: Thank you, Tom.
1: <laughs> That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Tom McKinnon and was engineered by Joel Parker.
0: Shelley Schlender is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Robert Fripp and Joey Keating.
1: can listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
0: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911 for How on Earth. The KGNU Science Show. I'm Tom McKinnon.
1: And I'm Shelley Schlender.